Welcome to the Odds Pod. I'm Dave Hendrick. And I'm Ben Hennessy. And we're the team behind the Scout Comics title, The Odds, a radical weight loss program that teaches you how to lose weight in seconds by severing those pesky appendages like legs, arms, and heads. It's a bestseller. Anyway, as we're sharing our apocalypse story with you, we thought we'd ask some cool folks about their favorite extinction events. We want to access Armageddon, Code Calamity, and Download Disaster. So, today's guest... He's a writer, a poet, a teacher, and a priest. His book, Still Points, was a big crossover hit in the, ma- the mind-body-spirit aisle, and he's fond of the old cryptid R2 as well. And not only is he all those things, but he's my real-life older brother. He is, by mutual agreement, my family's favourite funereal funster. He is Brother Richard Hendrick. Hey, thanks for joining us. Thank it's, you it's, for having me. It's the Hendrick double bill, I can't wait. Yeah, you're outnumbered, Ben, I'm afraid. This is this is dangerous territory. Well, yeah, I, I, I always feel like I'm outnumbered, you know, it's my, okay. Well, yeah. my, my instincts would tell me that I'm outnumbered here. So, like, having, <laughs> having, having previously dealt with Richard in public forums, like uh, my wedding, um, I think, uh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm the one with the most to lose on, on, on this particular episode. Hey, Rich, how's it going? Oh, we'll be nice. It's near, it's near Christmas. We'll be nice. Don't worry. This is our gift to you, Dave. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. for those of you who, who don't know um, Rich, he, um, he he pretty much is a real life Santa Claus. Um, he's he's sitting here with a, I don't know, is it a foot long beard? Um, maybe more. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, big, huge white beard. Um, he is a caption uh, friar, um, uh, operates out of Church Street in Dublin. They do uh, like huge work for the city. Um, you'll have seen if you're around Ireland or even if you if you access like the Irish Times website, you'll you'll see a big story on the um the food parcels and food vouchers that they hand out every year. They had like something like how many? Three thousand? We had three thousand queuing here uh, uh just a couple of days ago. Um they will receive uh, a, a voucher that then in, enables them to go to one of our kind of um grocery stores and uh avail of um, a kind of a package of basic groceries um, homelessness as you as everybody knows is growing growing problems so the center itself has been around since 1967 um, and sadly needed now more than ever um, so uh, yeah we we on average give out about 800 breakfasts a day about a wow. thousand dinners uh, we have a free medical clinic free counseling um chiropathy dental and opticians uh, children counselling service because there's now more than ever uh, children involved with the homelessness end of things as well. And then basic food services as well, uh, all operated on a strictly open door policy, no questions asked um, and all welcome. That's amazing. amazing work. Yeah. 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 Unreal. And uh, the the day centre, um, which was run by brother Kevin, he's a bit of a legend, um, for the work he's done, he's since retired. Is that right? He has. He's he has retired after nearly fifty years of of running the centre. Um, wow. Uh, our retirement age tends to be slightly later than usual, so he's eighty eight. Um, <laughs> retiring. Um, and uh, has now retired to to Cork, where he's from, um, where he's now looking after um his brother down there, who's in his early nineties. Um, but uh, we now have uh, been replaced. We've replaced brother Kevin with father Kevin. So another one <laughs> is now taken over. 
uh, which led to great interest by um, those who avail of the centre who now think that anyone in charge of it must be called Kevin, regardless oh, of... All right, okay. I mean, that's how I feel about it right now as well. Pure coincidence, but it meant that uh, it was it was handy because we didn't have to change much of the stationery. Um, <laughs> so it was good. Just cross out brother, father. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's kind of it. like when Doctor Who regenerates, you know, it's just, uh, just another version. Pretty much, yeah. pretty much. I mean, people just see us as interchangeable habits anyway. I remember having one lovely conversation with a lady who called to the door once who was asking to see Brother Richard. And I said, well, I am Brother Richard. And she said, no, you're not, and walked off. So that was, that was the end of that. So, uh, Were you wearing uh, Brother Kev's uh, habit that day or something? Or it, it, it must have been, yeah, it must have been. <laughs> the yeah, name yeah. tag was there if you read the wrong one. Yeah. <laughs> pretty, easy we get, bring in. pretty easy to get them mixed up, given, you know, it's just, they're all brown. They're all the same. I mean, like, how does that work, by the way? Like, do you, I've never, I've never thought about this. Do you guys just, you know, when it goes to laundry day, is it just grab one afterwards or not 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 quite. Um yeah. they are they are they are tailored to the individual. Um okay. so yeah, you're you're kind of in charge of your own, but they are all tagged because they, they can get they can get mixed up fairly. And are there like high end, low end ones? Have you got like a Louis Copeland version? <laughs> no, no designer, no designer one. No, no, no. Yeah. No, we make them we make them ourselves. Um they're very, very simple, very, very basic. Um Every year around about Halloween, we get inundated with requests from people who want to borrow them. And we have to remind people that these are not RO, they're not costumes as such. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, you make them yourselves? I didn't yeah, know. yeah, yeah. Wow. we make them ourselves. Yeah, the friars are all um, trained to be kind of self-sufficient. So we all have to learn a kind of a craft associated with our way of life. So uh, some of the brothers learn tailoring. Some of them learn the sandal making. Some of them learn... Um, uh, sort of the 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 bead work that was that was my work. I I prepare and make rosaries and things like that for them. So we all learn various crafts that are associated with our life. Yeah. Well, very good. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. And then just we won't we won't go on about it too much. But um, the day center has seen some some fairly exclusive guests. Like you had Metallica play there. <laughs> really? Yeah, different people have turned up at different times. We don't go looking for them. Um, they hear about the work and they appear. You know, they they come along. Um, we actually had an extraordinary occasion yesterday when um Shane McGowan's uh widow, the the widow of the late Shane McGowan, yeah. just turned and presented the 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 um the place with with uh with food and and uh, wanted to do something kind of kind of dishonor because so many of them would would have been great kind of Shane McGowan fans. Now, again, we don't know this. They just turn up. Probably the most interesting one was um, His Excellency, uh, the president turned up on one occasion uh, when Brother Kevin was still there. And so somebody shouted up the stairs to Kevin. uh, It was in the middle of dinner time, so a rush and chaos and all the rest of it. And they shouted up the stairs to say, the president's downstairs waiting for you. And Kevin just didn't come. He presumed they were just joking. So eventually (laughs) for President Higgins had to make his way up to his office to to find him. So... um, yeah, these these things happen. Um, yeah. It's kind of a place that that people turn up, and occasionally we get um, people who kind of test it. You know, they'll 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 turn up and just be in the queue incognito to see how are they treated and how are they looked after and that sort of stuff. But um, they 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 come in and they they receive their meal and you know and and then suddenly they reveal who they are. So it's it's quite an interesting what, place. What happens then when? When they do their big reveal, do you know who I am? Are you? Are they're you they're, like, they're, yeah, they're basically told you're either cleaning or leaving. You know, it's oh, okay. it's it's one or the other. It's it's very very busy in there. Yeah. Um, huge amount of 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 kind of um, 
turnover. And one of the one of the most interesting things that we have is we have a lot of medical students, doctors, uh, students who come down hmm. to do the okay. clinics because they see conditions there they'd never see anywhere else. Oh, so wow. the chiropathy sure. clinic is a real curiosity for trainee chiropodists because they see conditions that you wouldn't have seen anywhere else. We had trench one trench foot and stuff. Yeah, we had trench foot. Yeah, we yeah. actually had trench foot. We had one guy who's um if those of you who are into the kind of more power intent of things but like this they they had uh, a guy whose leather boots had been too small for him but he had worn them consistently for 10 years oh and the skin of his feet and the leather had become one so the boots had to be surgically removed um, wow. really interesting thing so that's, that's was he okay Parker level yeah, stuff, that is, yeah 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 we had one guy turned up to our dental clinic but was very annoyed to discover we did not supply gold teeth or grills um but, uh, <laughs> that was me yeah. <laughs> apart from that um you know Ben's basic, failed, basic failed. the grill all my life yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So. oh man that's that's insane yeah yeah unbelievable um and then last this time last year your book was out sorry it still points came out was yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, around end of September, beginning of October last year. So it's yeah. it's out there still. Um, it's uh, what we call an almanac, which is a kind of a, a way of dipping in across the year, across the seasons to kind of meditations, instructions mm-hmm. for meditation, poetry, reflections, bits and pieces like that. So, that's, so can we talk about the, the evolution of that? I think, um, I think if we, if, yeah, we, if you want, obviously you've been writing your whole life and, you know, you're, you're, you're um, a great, a great poet and, a, you know, a great, um, I would I would put you in the kind of natural poets out there, the yeah. Chestertons yeah, in this yeah. world, you know. Um, yeah. And but then something else happened on social media during lockdown. <laughs> do you want to do you want to talk about that? Yeah, bit? well, it was just as the country was going into lockdown here. You know, one by one, the countries were folding down, and, we, and I think we've all got this kind of amnesia at the moment where we forget just how shaking, world shaking, the whole thing was in in the sense that nobody knew what was on the other side of that. Nobody knew whether we were coming out of it, you know, um, or how soon we would come out of it or whatever. It was all very disaster and and kind of apocalyptic um, in, in tone. And the day that we were going into lockdown, um, I had three different encounters online, one with a young lady who had just qualified as a barrister. And she had now been told, well, you're not coming in, your job's gone. So she was deciding that she was going to at least put her time and energy to good work. And she'd gone around the neighborhood kind of telling the elderly, look, if you need anything, if you need groceries or whatever, I'm here because they were all sheltering in place kind of thing, the cocooning that was going on. The second thing was that in the town of Assisi, which is where our founder, St. Francis, comes from, um, somebody had gone there to see, you know, how, how were they getting on there? And all of the locals were now having concerts every night, but they were singing across the squares to each other across these narrow streets. Um, in good old Italian operatic fashion, um, you know, duetting and and, and singing across the streets. And then the third thing was an elderly Chinese lady who was on the news who was saying, I'd forgotten the sky was blue uh, because where she had lived, it was so industrial. Um, this was the first time that the, the, the fog, the smog had cleared enough for them to see it. So those three things became a poem. I called it lockdown. Um, it, it arrived fairly quickly and fairly self-complete unusually so. I threw it up online and went to bed, promptly forgot about it all, and woke up the next morning to my phone having kind of exploded during the night. The thing just went viral. Um, It went everywhere. Um, Within half an hour of waking up, I had RT and then BBC and all of these kind of people in in touch. Um, This is not the usual thing for us at all. Um, So it was kind of very inundating. Yeah, but come on, like you had... 
Anderson Cooper quoting you. Yeah, I think, yeah, he, I think yeah. he read the entire thing out on he CNN. He did, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. At the end of yeah, at the end of yeah. one of his podcasts, he had Alyssa yeah. Milano do it on Instagram. That's right. Yeah, um, yeah. And then our Taoiseach Leo Varadkar quoted mm-hmm. us in his in his speech at the end of the year. So yeah, yeah, it was, it was it was. I don't know how happy you are about that, but there you go. It was fairly weird. I mean, I I give no approbation to any of these individuals for anything else, but they certainly they certainly decided it was kind of of the moment. Um, yeah, it it went everywhere. Probably the strangest thing were were the, were the musical versions of it that were put together. So, um, the uh, University of Minnesota have turned it into an opera an operata operetta, um, uh, which is beautiful and sounds amazing. And then there are also several very strange trance dance versions of it out there that have actually used my voice in it. Um, so that's <laughs> really weird. Um, the funniest thing was getting it sent back to me as, oh, you like poetry, you might like this poem. And it had gone all around the world and it come back. So it's been translated at this stage into about 28 languages. Um, yeah. and, uh, um, and, then, and then still points came strange. from that, um, yeah. or the, the opportunity to, gotcha. to, to publish still points came from that. And, Funny story, like last this time last year, I was walking down Grafton Street um, to go to the office, and there's a bookstore on Grafton Street. And in the window, and I like I grew up a big YouTube fan. I grew up in the '90s, so Friends was everywhere. And in the window of the bookstore is Bono's book, Matthew Perry's <laughs> book, and my brother's book, all in this kind of you know trinity of here's what's out this year, you know. And I was like, well, there's there's my my adolescence right there. <laughs> there you are. Yeah, it was it was a rather strange year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He gave Bono a run for his money anyway. Um <laughs> so Rich, there's a there's a big question we ask everybody on this on this uh, podcast, and we'll get Ben to ask you. Well, what is your favorite apocalypse? Well, I was I was somewhat um expecting and, and slightly troubled by the question simply because I can't speak of the apocalypse itself as in the book of the apocalypse because one of your guests has already has already featured that. Yeah, nice one, Paul. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How dare he? Um, so I, I uh, decided to, to kind of reach back into familial past to some extent and some of the influences that were there. Um, and what I'm looking at is The Dark is Rising, um, which is the second volume in The Dark is Rising sequence by uh, Susan Cooper. Um, Carnegie uh, Medal award-winning um, author for, for this volume, for this book, which was published, I think, early 70s. Um, and uh, yeah, has has quite an apocalypse in it. And even more so for this time of year, it's all set around midwinter, Christmas, the folklore of all of that, that end of things. And the idea of a snowcopalypse as well, um, in the sense that uh, it, it it's a constant building of the idea of winter is the personification of these kind of chaotic forces that this young boy of 11 years of age, Will Stanton, has to face. I have completely forgotten about this book. It's only that you just brought it up that I, I remember buying a copy of this, thinking it was, um, I thought I put my hands on uh, Lord of the Rings with a yeah. you know, picture of the Nazgul on the cover, but it was something else entirely. And I have completely forgotten to go back to it because it's, it's all of my favorite things. It's an apocalypse. It's folklore. It, it's, I mean, I have completely just, I don't know how I've put this to the back of my memory and forgot, but for maybe for people who haven't read it, could you give us like um, a kind of a hint as to what kind of folklore where she, she sure. covers that kind of stuff? And, and yeah. So Su- Susan Cooper herself was a kind of a Celtic scholar. Um, one of the few people I think who could read kind of ancient and medieval Welsh. Um, 
And so fascinated by these kind of stories and particularly by the Arthurian uh, grail myths, etc., um, she fashioned a, a kind of a, a, a world, her kind of subcreated world exists where it's it's our world. It's it's the earth of 1974, 1975, um, where a young uh, boy of 11 years of age, Will Stanton, begins to go through this initiation to discover that there is actually a part of him um, that is what they call one of the old ones. So the idea is that there is a constant struggle between the dark and the light down through the ages. Um, it's 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 basic manichaeism as as a philosophy, um, but but we see it often in in these kind of these kind of works. Uh, and uh, Will is the last of the old ones to be born, so with him comes the completion of the circle and the beginning of the great battle between the dark and the light. So we have an eleven year old boy living in kind of uh, rural um, uh, rural England uh, who discovers that he is the kind of linchpin figure of this entire struggle. Um, he's the seventh son of a seventh son. You get all of these kind yeah. of kind of folkloric hints all the way through that maybe there's something odd or special about him. At the start, the signs that accompany his kind of awakening to this are very dark. So we don't know, is he actually evil? Is he good? What's what's happening along the way? And finally, the mentor figure appears, as always does in this in this area, who is known as Merriman Lion, um, who eventually, spoiler alert, after 1973, I think we're safe, um, becomes, uh, we, we realize that he's actually been Merlin, who has been guiding the circle of the light from the beginning. And so we have time travel, we have uh, the learning of magic, we have the understanding of the kind of Celtic elemental forces, um, the the constant build she's very very good at building this constant sense of tension and oppression so we have an 11 year old boy who is subject to all the things 11 year olds are you know parental permission um the discipline of school all of that kind of stuff um and at the same time we have this unfolding being who's discovering they're actually someone of immense power um but who has to negotiate what this power is and how it is to be applied to the dark and the light Amazing. And it's, how many books is it in total? So, so Dark is Rising is the second novel. It's, yeah, it's five, uh, five, five books. books. Yeah, five yeah. books. OC Understone was the first one, which yeah. is, you know, it's one of these sequences that you're actually better starting with book two. Um, yeah, okay. It's kind of like uh, Terry Pratchett's, you know, if you start with the light fantastic, it just isn't what Discworld becomes. Mm -hmm. So it's always better to kind of start with book two or three and kind of go back to that as a sort of, oh, now I see what he was trying for, you know, that kind of yeah. idea. The two that are that are kind of really important from a folklore point of view is The Dark is Rising and the one that comes after it, which is set in Midsummer, which is uh, the Greenwich, um, which takes the story to Cornwall and all of the um, the kind of uh, green man uh, cool. tradition around that and particularly the sacrificing of, that still happens to this day, these are all real customs, where the green witch is made um, and then sacrificed to the sea for um, uh, good weather and good fishing for the year ahead. Um, so it's so a just, very, just, very... Just, just explain that now, the green witch herself, that's... Okay, so not a effigy. human being, not yeah. a human being, it's an effigy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it indicates the kind of forces of chaotic nature. So the idea is the green witch is the daughter of the sea. So she's being held on land um, and she is sacrificed back to the sea, her mother, so as to to ensure that um, humanity has kind of a, a good relationship with the um, 
uh, with with the, the sea going forward. Um, this is an annual custom. These things happen uh, and yeah. still happen to this day. Um, and the same is true with a lot of the customs of um, that we see in the dark is rising. So we have the winter solstice celebrations at the twenty, you know, the twenty first of December. We have the Christian Christmas celebrations that are in the background. We have the mystery uh, mysteries that lie behind carols like the holly and the ivy or Good King Venturesless or all of these old songs that are, that are sung. Um, to, to quote um, Terry Pratchett about winter, he's, he says, winter is about blood and nothing else. And, and there's, there's, there's a truth in that that you see in all of these kind of great high fantasies about winter, uh, that usually we have this, this kind of fear of, and it goes back to primitive humanity. We could die, you know, before the light comes back. So how do we bring it back and how do we kind of charge it? Um, and Susan Cooper does a very good job at kind of weaving in uh, what's known as the matter of Britain, the, the great Arthurian cycle, uh, particularly through the Welsh lens of the Mabinogion um, and all of the, the various um, kind of folkloric uh, tropes that we would expect to find. But she does a really good job of we're seeing it all from the perspective of a frightened 11 year old boy. And that's the really interesting thing about it. Yeah. Is it one of those things like where he ages as the books go on or does he stay 11 years? Yeah. Of age? No, no, no. It's 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 um, uh, you know, every year we, we kind of go up a year. Um, and what's interesting is he has to negotiate the idea of when he is not operating as one of the the old ones. He's just living an ordinary life until he gets called on again and again um, to, to kind of, you know, awaken this part of him and, and, and then unfold the kind of knowledge and power that's there. Um, one of the interesting things about it as well is that in the other books, they, they, they have a circle of ordinary children. They're just young people who, are, who basically enter into a kind of an Enid Blyton-esque quest to sort of solve a mystery. By the end of book three, they've brought those two groups together or she's brought those two groups together. And so you have this real, really well done dialogue between early teens, you know, um, uh, young people as they're, as they're sort of um, bickering and fighting and trying to find their way through. And in the middle of it all is this 11 year old boy who with a blink of an eye could could destroy all of them, um, you know, and and uh, and yet is choosing to to walk the path of the light, which means restraining the use of magic, the use of power, unless it's absolutely needed. Cool. What, uh, what age were you when you read this? Because I kind of feel like... I was about eight, I think. I, I kind yeah, of feel like yeah. this is part of your, I mean, whole... So you keep popping up in, in Astonishing Legends. You keep popping up in Monster Calls. <laughs> well, I, I that's a feel different like, path. That's yeah, a different path. Very much that, so. That I mean, goes back to uh, the, the fact that, that as a three, four-year-old, I was obsessed with dinosaurs and then discovered, <laughs> you know, you can't meet them. Um, so, so the problem with that then was, well, where were the things nearest to, to those things? And that led me down the kind of cryptid, um, uh, cryptozoology uh, interest level. So there is, there is a mesh, there is a, 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 a there, there's a very interesting encounter in, oh, which one is it in, in the very end book? Um, I think it's the Grey King of, of this, where, um, they realized that a lot of these, uh, cryptid creatures in this are actually kind of supernatural entities and this is why they can't be found and they're either servants of the dark or servants of the light. I remember being horrified by that when I came across in book five because I wanted real physical, biological, you know, um, uh, cryptids. I'm now right over the other side where I'm convinced anything that people are seeing or encountering like this is either born from within their own mind or subconscious or something spiritual from that point of view, possibly a mix of both. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. so the likes of, you know, your your common or garden yeti or or bigfoot or 
So you're, you you kind of think there's some maybe extra dimensional element or the more the more you look into it from just from sheer biology. Um, the first thing is nobody ever asks the locals. You know, this is the thing. And when you when you talk to the locals, and I have very good friends who are Tibetan uh, monastics in the Buddhist tradition. And they say, of course, the Yeti exists, but it doesn't exist like they think it exists. It comes in and out of our world all of the time. Um, there's a lovely story of of a, a guy who was um, doing some anthropological studies on Buddhism in Tibet. Mm-hmm. And he was staying at one of the great monasteries there. And while the monks were chanting and doing their work and he was studying and studying it and seeing what was going on, um, a guy who was just drunk and upset broke in and kind of disturbed the, the monastery, um, at which point the abbot kind of indicated to two or three of the senior monks and they kind of walked towards the individual and your mom was expecting to see the guy being strong armed outside. But as they walked towards him, there was a flash in the room and a Chinese Oriental Asian form of dragon appeared in the room, terrified the guy, your man ran out. Uh, the dragon faded away and the guys just went back to their chant. So afterwards, the anthropologist asked the question we were all asking, which is what the hell was that? Yeah. And and uh, asked the abbot, um, you know, so the abbot said to him, well, what do you think it was? And he said, well, it was either hypnosis and some kind of hallucination or you actually brought some kind of entity in here or you made us see something that wasn't actually there. Or And he went through all of these possibilities. And at the end, the abbot just said, yes. <laughs> and so, you know, from that from that point of view, um, you know, in our tradition as well, we would speak of kind of spiritual entities that also manifest um, through co-creation with the person's own psychological imagination. So these things can appear, but they will reach inside you and pull their clothing from your imagination or from your mind and appear in those ways. Um, it's basically an ancient form of um, using filters on your phone. <laughs> so so like it, that's interesting because I've heard so many takes on uh, Bigfoot being... Um, mm a gigantopithecus and all this kind of stuff, but I've never heard of Bigfoot being a kind of a tulpa before, you know? Like, yeah, and it may be a tulpa of a gigantopithecus. We, we just don't know, <laughs> you know? It's it's both and, uh, or, or many often. The difficulty becomes when somebody is saying, Bigfoot's in my back garden, you know? And and at that point, there, there's absolutely no way that an animal of that size, just from sheer biology, could exist in numbers big enough to provide a breeding population. Now, in some places, sure, you go off to Alaska, you go off to, you know, the northern the, the northern Rockies, you go off to these the kind of these kind of places. Sure, anything could be up there. Who knows what's up there? But I, I've been up there. Is, They're not up yeah. there. <laughs> well, you haven't seen them up there. You know, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, as they say. So yeah. it's 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 important, I suppose, for us to recognize that, you know, as human beings, we operate on many, many levels at one time. Yeah. And even yeah. the idea of symbolic imagination is what, you know, all of these great stories are about. Mm-hmm. Apocalypse itself comes from the Greek apocalypsis, which means simply to open the curtains in the morning. That's what that verb means. You open the curtains in the morning, you let the light into the room. So when the light isn't there, the things are there, but you can't see them because it's dark. You pull back the curtain and now you can see the things. So that's what apocalypse means in itself. And it was always a very positive thing. You know, we've kind of made it a very negative, terrifying, dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. But the actual Greek word itself means something really positive. It means you're not going to bump into something because now you've got light. Um, So this is is, uh, what what we're sort of doing. So all of these great writers, all of them, all of the great mythologists, are effectively 
apocalyptic writers because they're shining a light on a symbolic part of ourselves. And then we get to kind of learn deeper truths that way. Cool. I think. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm with you on that one, you know. Um, uh, that's that's a great way of looking at it. And yeah. I, love, I love the idea of, you know, uh, not bumping into things in the dark, you know. Um, yeah. yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a great way of of um, I suppose imagining or or or, or realizing what what's done with these stories, you know. And at the, at the core of it all, it's just story, you know, to yeah. explain what's going on around us. Yeah, um, yeah, it's the, like the the power of those metaphors um, that have kind well, of. Well, there's an old there's an there's an old uh, Jewish proverb that says um, uh, uh, truth was found um, shivering and alone outside the village. And when the rabbi asks her, why are you alone and scared? She says, because I knocked on the people's doors and they wouldn't let me in. So the rabbi dresses her in the, in the, garb, in the, the cloak of story and the hat of parable and the shoes of fable. And now when she knocks on the doors, she's brought in and put beside the fire. You know, yeah. so in in that sense, this is how we encounter truth. It's what we do. I mean, the oldest um, element of of human culture that we are aware of that, that they kind of go, yep, yeah, definitely, definitely from this point. Now everything's getting older all the time, but definitely was what they call the Shanadar burial, which was the first time that an elderly person who had suffered life changing injuries is seen to have healed from those injuries. So, and, and they could only have healed from those injuries if they were preserved, if they were looked after, if they were kept. So the big question that a lot of the anthropologists had was, what's the use when you are literally surviving based on, you know, is this cave occupied by, you know, bear, lion or me? Um, that, you know, if, if, why would you keep this person with you? And the yeah. answer was, they're the storyteller. They, they, they're able to, to give the wisdom of what went before. Of We found the berries there. Don't eat those mushrooms. You know, watch watch out for what's under that rock. So if they've got story, then they're human. I'll use that. I'll use that next time I'm pitching an artist. You know, so if you want to, yeah. if you want to make sure the tribe doesn't throw you over the the, the edge of the cliff, yeah, you know, do a story with me. It'd be great. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, there's a guy called Watson who is one of the great kind of anthropologists of, of this thing. He says we should never have called ourselves Homo sapiens. You know, wise human beings, but we are Homo narans you know, the storytelling being, because as far as we know, we're the only being, at least physically, biologically, that tells narrative story. You know? Yeah. So I'm convinced crows do, to be honest. But there oh, we go. Oh, yeah. Go on. Crows. Yeah. Crows. Definitely. Absolutely. No, no, no doubts about it. They have a complete sense of humor as well. So you know, anything that has a sense of humor is able to tell a story, you know. I don't know if do you ever... have a sense. Of... I've seen them crack like nuts open like by dropping them on the road so a car runs over it and, and oh yeah I, I, i've heard stories about them like identifying farmers so that they they fly away when they know this guy comes out and come back when he's we had, we had a beautiful flock of crows up in up in 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 ours in donegal which is one of the places i lived in for a, a while we got beautiful forest and retreat center up there that anybody can visit it's open to everybody but there's a wonderful flock of gray crows there who've been there forever and ever and they know anybody dressed like us is not a problem so they will follow along now we're on fourth fifth generation so in some way they're they're teaching each time these guys are okay um i used to be able to call them in in the mornings um which i really shouldn't have started because then if i didn't come out to feed them they found my window in the in the in the friary i would knock on the window until i came out 
So, um, you know, there's there's some kind of narration. Just, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. getting the wrong side of that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Ben, next time you're ne- next time you're up my way, I'm going to bring you to uh, the, the the local drive-through where the crows mug people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah, surround yeah. cars. I thought it was yeah. the seagulls in Dublin that were the problem, not the crows. No, no, <laughs> not not up this far. No, we don't we don't get too many seagulls out this way. Mm. Thank God. But uh, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a little drive-through restaurant around the corner, and when people park there to eat their terrible food, you get the crows just circling the cars like <laughs> on the ground they're just on the ground and sometimes they're on top of the car and yeah. it's, yeah. it's creepy when they're on the ground that's mm. that's a bit weird you know I'd, yeah. be, I'd be okay with it for some reason i'm more okay with it like flying around circling the car yeah. than I am with them oh no i have seen it, yeah. i've seen people losing it just terrified it's like you know it's like a hard dinosaur never went somebody. away <laughs> <laughs> they just put on feathers that's all they yeah, want yeah. my big mac yeah i remember i remember being on safari and um we were at a point where we were supposed to go in with our driver and he was picking up all the, the kind of lunch we're supposed to for today. But the baboons had kind of figured out like when the driver leaves to go get the food, there's an opportunity to get into the passenger seat when he's walking around. <laughs> yeah. So like uh, there's a big deal like when when he gets into the car, he's telling you to like watch that. Don't let them come into the car because they'll hop in over the roof and, and, and try to grab it. And sometimes they'll, they'll play with the people and distract them while another guy goes in to go grab the dinner. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, clever. It's, yeah, 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 yeah. But that, that's interesting. It's like you know, given that's somewhat instinctual behavior, somewhat learned behavior. But like, would you say then, and we're veering into almost scientific um, areas now. But would you say that our desire to tell stories is instinctual? I think. I think it's for me. I, I suppose coming from the life I lead and, and the work that that I'm involved in, like we, we would say that creation itself everything that exists is a story it's it's a story that's being told so in that sense um you know around about this time of year um we will proclaim the gospel of the the word becoming flesh you know verbum carol factum est we'll talk about that but actually the translation of that the proper the full translation because we tend to think of word like a word written on a page and that's not what it means it means a word that is being spoken a story that's being unfolded so what we would say is that when you come to the Christmas story in, in our tradition, we believe that's all of those great mythological cycles becoming flesh in that moment through the Logos, the, 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 the divine word. Um, from a scientific point of view, just from a brain point of view, our brain is totally ordered towards story. So we have wonderful neurobiolo- neurobiological studies now that have been done on this and say that humanity processes reality, is only able to process basically sensory experience and reality through through narrative causality, through narrative story. Um, so if you're constructing stories all of the time, usually, of course, as a human being with yourself as the kind of hero in the center of it all, you know, um, it means that the only way we get to relate with one another is to, is to, to literally wind stories together. And so the archetypal stories, the big, big stories that get then written as little myths or whether that's in you know comic or media or 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 film or tv or back to the books or whatever it might be um all of that is us telling our own experience as as humanity over and over again so as to keep wisdom present yeah you know excellent like folklore folklore exists and works because um we only hold on to what's useful because it keeps us alive yes yeah. It keeps us alive. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Yeah. And just on the dark is rising, there 
were a couple of adaptations. We won't talk about the movie one, which is just the movie is dreadful. Dross. Ignore it completely. Um, but the Radio Four adaptation from last year. Um, yeah, it's incredible, and it's still up there. Um, so anybody who's got the, the BBC player can can listen to it. Uh, it's very well done as an audio drama. Um, and uh, Robert McFarlane, who's also a folklorist and great, great writer about kind of the, the the ways of the countryside and natural beauty and all of that kind of stuff, he he featured it on Twitter as kind of his favorite winter book. And lots of other people piled on saying, oh, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. That was amazing, brilliant, etc. So they reached out to Susan Cooper, uh, got the radio rights and did um, a really, really good series. It's I think it's about six episodes long, so you can actually follow it uh, because the the they they did it each night of the week that the that the story itself takes place in. So it's great Christmas listening to if you want to to sit and kind of kind of yes. something in the background that makes the fire crackle a little louder in the dark, yeah. kind of pressing around the house a little more. Yeah, gather the, gather the, yeah. the 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 tribe around the around the, the radio. Yeah, and yeah. perfectly suitable for you know eleven, twelve year olds up probably not that suitable for the anybody younger than that it it it, it does rank up the tension and get kind of a bit yeah. yeah, I think I think my four-year-old is ready for an apocalypse into the world type story. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, she's ready yeah, for yeah, it. No yeah. doubts about it. Yeah, she yeah. Just finished yeah. Hilda. She's ready for this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rich, if people want to check out your stuff or get in touch or, you know, even drop in to mm-hmm. like to to give a donation to the day center or whatever, what where can they find you? Okay, so day, day day center first. It's very simple. It's just it's just capuchindaycenter.ie or just Google, Google Capuchin Day Center. We have the Dublin one. We also have one in Detroit, which is very famous as well. So you know, if you want to donate to people or places that are nearer you to your own local community, if you just look up Capuchin Day Centers, you'll find that we're scattered all over the world. Um, and then for myself, um, just look up Brother Richard. You'll find me on Facebook and on Instagram. That's mostly where I post stuff. So either of those things. And they're open to the public. So feel free. Excellent. Okay. And uh, I know where to find you anyway. So um, yeah, I see you at Christmas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You're a busy time of the year. Um, thanks for joining us on the odd spot. It's been, yeah, it's, it's been, it's brilliant. been a privilege. And I, I, I love the podcast. It's really good. Thank that's you so yeah. much. Thanks for joining us on The Odds Pod. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for The Odds coming soon from Scout Comics. And please tell us what your favorite apocalypse is. You can find me on Twitter at Benessy. That's B-E-N-N-E-S-S-Y. And me on at Dave Hendrick. Big thanks to our producer, Adrian Carty, and we'll see you at the end of the world.